Welcome to the podcast with all your mind, hosted by me, Rachel Grimm. We're here to help understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, good morning, guys. This is Rachel, and this is With All Your Mind. Um, and it's morning. Yeah, I don't often record in the morning. I usually do it in the early afternoon when my boys are sleeping. I I record these at home, and it's just me and my boys, so got to do it when they're <laughs> quiet, which is never. So anyway, we're on a continuation of the last episode, which was about the Messiah, and we broke it into two parts. The first episode was uh, defining the Messiah from the Christian pr- perspective, which identifies the Messiah as Jesus. So we talked about prophecies in the Old Testament and how we use the New Testament to interpret them. This episode, we're going to talk about the Messiah from the Old Testament perspective, which would be the Israelite perspective or the Jewish perspective, meaning we're not taking for granted that Jesus is the Messiah. We're kind of looking at it without the New Testament. It's a little bit different because now we're going to look at it as if it's a mystery. We're looking at the kind of the raw information, the prophecies of the Old Testament without making any assumptions or just kind of pretending like we don't know that it's Jesus and seeing what does it look like and how does it seem and what do you do with this information and trying to figure out how the Old Testament writers and people in the Old Testament would have felt about prophecies and what they would have tried to establish from the prophecies and what it would have meant to them. And, you know, even just for their practical lives, what would it have meant for them? So we're going to do that a couple of different ways, but we're going to kind of, you know, go back to the beginning, define what a Messiah is again, and talk about anointing a little bit more. We only talked about one way of anointing in the last episode, the way that was pertinent to the Messiah. But in this one, we're going to talk a little bit more about anointing in general, just because we're talking about anointing, we might as well define it. All right, so, and by the way, everywhere I have been lately, every book I've been reading lately has been talking about the Messiah. So I'm like, got so much information going on. And every time I hear it in public, like at church or something, I think, man, they're stealing my thunder. But basically, I have a lot of different sources that are coming into this. And everything is just Messiah, Messiah, Messiah. All right, so let's start back where we were. Once again, the Christian Bible is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Messianic prophecies are in the Old Testament, and the New Testament is the way that we know how to interpret those prophecies and the way that we know that Jesus fulfills those prophecies. And the way that we know that Jesus fulfills them in two different ways because of two different comings. Not all of the messianic prophecies have been fulfilled yet. So some people might use that as an argument that Jesus was not the Messiah because he did not fulfill all the prophecies. Well, he tells us that he is coming again and will fulfill all the rest of the prophecies. So 
There's two different ways of looking at that. If you're a Christian, we believe Jesus. We believe that he is right, that he is coming again, and we are not scared that he missed something. Now, the Jewish Bible has just the Old Testament, which they call the Tanakh, which is the law, the prophets, and the writings, and it's an acronym, Tanakh, for those three things. They have the Messianic prophecies, but the belief that the Messiah has yet to come. He hasn't come yet. Um, there are actually different sects in, in Judaism. Uh, a couple of them believe that their Messiah has already come. When uh, Ryan and I lived in Israel, we lived in an apartment in a Jewish town in central Israel. And our, we were on the fifth floor. And we looked out over the main road of our town, which made our apartment really noisy but it always gave us something interesting to look at. <laughs> and once in a while, we would see this van that we called the, uh, what did we call it? We called it the Psychedelic Meshiach Mobile. <laughs> and it was, it was this van. It was like a panel van, like an A-team van. But it was, I think it was like a vibrant blue and it was spray painted up, like very artistically. It was really nicely done, but really bright colors. And it had, I forget what was written on the van. It was in Hebrew, so, and it was a long time ago. But it had neon lighting and like, you know, under the car, all over it. And it had a loudspeaker on top. And it would drive through the town playing, I think, music. Ah. It's been so long. I should have talked to Ryan about this before I started recording. It would just be this fascinating sight to see this bright neon panel van driving through central Israel, blaring music. And it was to the the general gist was that they were announcing the the Messiah because this group believed it was a particular person and that he had already come and that they were they're evangelizing their Messiah. So you have to keep in mind that we're not the only people. Christians are not the only people that believe that the Messiah has come. Different sects of Judaism also believe that. But they don't use the New Testament books to prove their Messiah. They use other things. All right, so back to my, back to my stuff. That was a sidebar. We're going to talk about anointing again because... We actually see the three different ways that something can be anointed. There are three different reasons or purposes that something can be anointed or someone can be anointed all through the Bible. And the way that the Meshiach, the Messiah, is anointed is just one of those purposes. So we're going to talk about all three because why not? All right, so the first um, purpose that something can be anointed, and it can be anointed with oil, wine or perfume is for a health or comfort purpose and this is just the most practical way to anoint and you can use the english word apply as in to apply lipstick or to apply lotion or to apply sunscreen it's basically putting something on your body for a medicinal purpose or for beauty or for comfort lotion can be for comfort chapstick you know you can apply chapstick that's kind of the same idea as anointing in biblical times they would have used olive oil for a lot of things 
put olive oil on your skin to treat dry skin olive oil for chapstick i mean it's edible why not a couple of places that we see that are the good samaritan the good samaritan in the gospels anointed the wounded man that he found with oil and wine oil to soothe wine as an antiseptic so the first way that you can anoint is just purely practical for aesthetics maybe but it's not a weird one that we don't do anymore and feels very foreign it's very familiar it's just a very normal application of something on the body to help it the second way that we see anointing and the second way that it is just a the general definition of anointing is using it as a gesture of honor uh, we see this in luke 7 when mary anoints jesus feet with spikenard and she is criticized for it you know oh why did she use this expensive oil well she was doing it to honor jesus she didn't care how much it cost because she was honoring him to the greatest capacity that she could she got the most expensive nicest things that she could because she wanted to give him the greatest honor so that's generally something that could be done anointing for honor you know washing feet putting oil on somebody's head you know it was you know they're not dumping it it was you know a symbol or a gesture of honor I couldn't think of a modern equivalent for that. I was thinking, was holy water a way to do this? Or like, you know, the sign of the cross in the, in the Catholic and Orthodox churches? But not really, because that's a sign of blessing, not honor. And I was trying to think if there's some, in some kingdom in, for kings and queens, are they anointed with anything? And I couldn't think of anything. So if you guys think of something that is done for royalty that it's like oil or perfume or something not a blessing but as an honor that would be an equivalent but i couldn't think of anything that was the same so that's the second way that you can anoint is for honor the third way um, and this is the way that we're using for the messiah is the to use oil to mark or um, symbolize consecrating dedicating or marking as holy for a specific purpose and that's how we use it to talk about the messiah in biblical times articles in the tabernacle and temple were anointed and kings and priests were anointed and it was pretty common in the middle east or the near east as it was known then to anoint with perfume or oil as a consecrating thing as a dedicating thing so do we have a modern equivalent of that consecrating or uh, kind of dedicating? Well, we have the idea of dedicating and we have the idea of christening. And think about that word christening, how it's spelled C-H-R-I-S-T in the rest of the word. Christening something or someone, like christening babies, christening a boat, that's anointing. We're dedicating it. Well, with babies and with boats, I think it's, you know, uh, you can't put those two together. <laughs> when you're christening a baby, you're dedicating them to a faith. And that's why I think in evangelical circles, it's often, you know, you know, you can dedicate a baby towards wanting them to be a part of the faith. And then in different 
um, denominations and sects, they believe that you could be born into a faith. So with that, christening can be seen as dedicating the parents to teaching the child about the faith or dedicating the child to the faith. With a boat, mm, you're kind of christening it, but I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not a boat person. I don't know much about, you know, boat culture. But the other thing that I thought of was when somebody builds a new house and sometimes people, they'll invite friends and their church over to bless the house or to dedicate it. And they'll do that by praying in the house and sometimes writing verses and prayers up on like the wall before they paint it. So it'll be covered up, but it's kind of like christening. It's kind of like anointing or dedicating. We're not using a perfume or oil to do it, but it's the same general idea that you're asking God to dedicate this house to holy purposes that you hope that it will only be used for good and those kinds of things. So it's a looser idea in modern times, but we do generally have the same idea, okay? So that third purpose, anointing a king or a priest, uh, an anointed one, somebody who has been anointed, is a messiah. Now where I want to go next is how did we get one specific idea of one special anointed person, right? Because we have kings and priests anointed in the Old Testament. How did we know that there would be one special one to come that wasn't just another king or another priest that had nothing to do with being a deity? And that idea of um, the anointed one, the Messiah being God, we do have to kind of suspend that idea for a little bit too, because that is not at all clear from the Old Testament that the Messiah would also be God. So we have to kind of put that one on hold. Okay, so what are our what are our ideas? How do we know that there's one specific Messiah or Christ? The way that people came around to realizing, oh, this is referring to somebody special, is first of all, repetition. Lots and lots and lots and lots of messianic prophecies that point to a really big event, right? A really important time period. And if you remember from the last episode, we started off talking about the Messiah and Messianic prophecies with Genesis 3. And that was talking about Satan, the serpent, the evil one, being crushed by the seed of Eve. And so it was a reversal of the evil done and the evil that was kind of introduced to the world and that's something that just a normal person wouldn't be able to do kings and priests don't reverse all that priests worked in the temple to show atonement that they were covering the sin of the people that god was allowing for covering of sin but there was no huge reversal or dramatic change there was just a way to deal with sin There was also a lot of um, prophecies about a time period of peace and prosperity where Israel's enemies would be crushed. And you might think, well, that kind of happened in the time of King David, 
except that King David was always at war. He was crushing enemies, but he was constantly crushing enemies. It wasn't like he reached a time period of peace where there was finally like, ah, here we go. Here's the messianic age. And he would be kind of the closest that we could come to of a messianic time period because he was a king. So he was anointed. I guess you could also say that Solomon kind of fits that because he's a king and he had peace in his time. But was he this grand figure that was like a messianic figure? No, he was wise. He was um, rich. Prosperity? Absolutely. I don't think I ever got the perception that anybody saw him as a messianic figure. I just don't get that. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of connotations, prosperity, crushing enemies, bringing peace, dealing with sin in some way, and being a king and a priest. So for Christians, we use the New Testament to interpret these prophecies. So Jews don't have that, so we have various interpretations for the appearance of the Messiah. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to run through a couple of facts that I learned as I was reading about the Messiah and looking at Messianic prophecies and just looking at them, you know, just reading them in succession was interesting on its own, but also learning how we look at prophecy and what is considered prophecy. So here's my list. Fact number one, writers of the Old Testament didn't understand the prophecies for one or even know which passages would be prophetic. My prime example is Hosea 11.1, and this is the verse. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. At the time, this was factual, and there was nothing prophetic-seeming about this verse. Israel, the nation of Israel before it really became a nation, was in Egypt, Um, when Joseph was in Egypt and then all of his brothers and his dad came down and they stayed there and became a great nation. And then they moved back out into the land of Palestine and became eventually the nation of Israel. As a people, they were the nation of Israel, but they didn't have a land yet, per se. And so, sorry, I have this you know, junk in my throat, and I'm trying to keep keep it cool, keep it quiet, but it's going to come out from here, here and there, so sorry about that. So when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Israel was considered the, like, the children of God, the, his, his inheritance, right? So it wasn't odd for God to refer to Israel as his son, and so this whole verse was factual, There was nothing prophetic seeming about it. It didn't really look like a prophetic. It was in prophecy until the New Testament when Matthew quotes it and says, this applies to Jesus because Jesus went to Egypt um, when he was a young child, when he was in danger of Herod and an angel came to uh, Joseph, his dad, and said, take him to Egypt. You're in danger here. And then an angel said, you're good. Come on back. And they moved back to Israel. So Matthew, divinely inspired, or maybe Jesus told him, we don't know how he knew, but he realized this is, this is a prophecy, and this applies to Jesus. Hosea, 
did not know this was a prophecy. Anybody reading Hosea in his time would not have known that this was a prophecy. So fact number one, messianic prophecies are sometimes even identified as messianic prophecies in the New Testament. Number two, and this is a big one, (laughs) and it's a little bit confusing, so stick with me. This one blew my mind. I was like, oh, yeah, I get that now. I didn't get that before. I always had a sense that there was something wrong with this, but now I know why, okay? Fact number two, because we interpret messianic prophecies through the New Testament, to say that those prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus proves the Bible to be true is a circular argument, okay? To say, I'm going to read that again. (laughs) Because we interpret messianic prophecies through the New Testament, to say that those prophecies being fulfilled by Jesus proves the Bible to be true is a circular argument. If you assume the Bible is true, you're not proving it to be true. You're already assuming it's true. Okay, so I've heard people say that they try to encourage family members to have faith in the Bible because Jesus fulfilled prophecies and that proves that the Bible is true. That doesn't work. (laughs) Um, If you're trying to evangelize that way, you're using bad logic. And if somebody realizes that later after you've evangelized to them that way, they might think that you're stupid (laughs) or resent what seems like manipulation or twisting things a bit because it's not logical to evangelize that way. What you can do with messianic prophecies and Jesus fulfilling them is say that the logic of the Bible is good. It's great. It's wonderful. It's infallible, right? There's everything works out in the Bible, But you can't try to prove that the Bible is true by messianic prophecies. You can say it's logical, it's complete, it it works together as a coherent book, but you can't prove it to be true with messianic prophecies, right? And funny story, I didn't know this. Um, I thought I was really smart by realizing this, and then I looked up, Uh, messianic prophecies I just googled it to see what would come up and if you look on the wikipedia page they actually say this about messianic prophecies in like their first paragraph so I'm only as smart as uh, the first paragraph of a wikipedia article so go me all right fact number three all right so this one yeah okay let's get into it lots of there's just so many messianic prophecies and it really depends on who you talk to and what kind of list you're looking at i found lists that were 33 messianic prophecies 44 messianic prophecies 500 some messianic prophecies 600 plus messianic prophecies so suffice it to say there are lots and a messianic prophecy can be one referring to a messiah or the time in which a Messiah would come, kind of like what kind of circumstance would be going on when the Messiah would come. So when you say messianic prophecy, you're talking about both the person and the time period, because you're often talking about peace and prosperity. 
that's not talking about the person that's talking about the situation the circumstance the environment that would be when the messiah comes so there's tons and tons depending on how you want to look at it lots of messianic prophecies and they're all through the old testament which was written over a period of 1500 years ish depending on who you talk to by dozens of authors in 39 different books in a north kingdom and a south kingdom all right so we have different places different people different time periods with all of these different prophecies so the prophecy that we have it's not like a painting it's not like a photo it's not like a photo with good resolution where you can see every detail and figure out every part of the photo because it's so clear and it comes together in a complete picture it's more like an impressionist painting or a quilt or something where you have to kind of stand really far away from it to see some details and you have to get up close to see some details and it's all over the place it's referring to different things and it has different characteristics for who this messiah would be so here's here's some different pictures of the messiah a conquering king one who takes sins and suffers somebody who is rejected and and shamed and one that comes on the clouds of heaven so it really should be no surprise that the Jews didn't always necessarily think that this would be just one person. I've read two different books now uh, referring to the Messiah and talking about the Messiah, and one of them was just a you know one page in this 300-page book uh, talking about Messiahs. Let me go into that one. My The book I'm currently reading is about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so it was talking about the Essenes who lived, who are probably <laughs> the people that lived at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So there's debate about whether even these guys were the ones that were living there. If you've heard about them, you've also probably heard about them at Masada. They um, went to Masada to escape from the Romans when the Romans were um, conquering Jerusalem and Israel in AD 68. So you usually hear about the Essenes much more at Masada, but they were probably also at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So the Essenes were the sect or denomination or splinter group or whatever you want to call them, because even in this book, they're like, we don't know what to call them, that were similar to Sadducees and Pharisees. They're just different religious groups with strong beliefs, and people flocked to different groups. The Pharisees were popular with the common people, because um, they took a little bit more of a loosey-goosey stance on things. Like they were the ones that were famous for having many divorces. So you, you can imagine people that are a little bit more relaxed on rules and laws tend to be more popular with people. Those were the Pharisees. The Sadducees were much more strict. And you know what? Maybe we'll do a whole podcast on this one one time. Sadducees were more in Jerusalem and much more strict and only believed, I believe, in the old, the, the law, the Pentateuch, the laws of Moses. And so they didn't believe in spirits because that's not mentioned in the law. And then this last group, the Essenes, were kind of in the middle. 
um, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but on different aspects. They were super duper strict. You got excommunicated from the group if you deliberately disobeyed one of the laws of Moses. So really strict and they like had annual gradings. <laughs> it was crazy. They were way overboard. But anyway, the Essenes believed that there would be two messiahs and they believed that one of them would be the king of the Davidic line. So he would be the conquering king. But then there would be a second messiah that would be a Levite and he would be this priest that advises the king. So they saw the priest king role as being two roles. And it makes sense, right? There was always a priest and a king in Israel. Why shouldn't there still be a priest and a king in the future when God's perfect plan comes together? You know, it, it's not so far-fetched. These ideas, these um, theories that the Jews had are not far-fetched. They're based on evidence. They're based on the facts that they had on hand. They weren't simple-minded. They were deep thinkers, and that's how they interpret it. Another interpretation I read in a different book, a really complicated book about the Messiah. The whole book was about the Messiah, really fascinating book. But he brought out that there was evidence that Jews believed that there would be four different Messiahs. And one of them would be of the line of Ephraim. And you look into why they think that, and it makes sense. It really does make sense. So it's not like they were simple-minded and just kind of coming up with stuff. It was because they studied so much that they had so much detail that they they took it seriously. Um, so we, when you look at the prophecies in the Old Testament, you now have to ask, all right, would this be one person or several people? So we now have the options of one person, two people, or four people to be messiahs. Now you might argue, okay, but, you know, whenever it's talked about the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's only talking about one person. It's singular, right? Remember how many times the word Mashiach is used in the Old Testament and referring to the coming one and not a present king or priest? Two times. And those two times we take to mean it's Jesus. But, you know, two times to say, oh, it's singular when there's maybe hundreds of messianic prophecies you know you can really think well okay maybe it's only a singular there so we have no one complete picture in the old testament that ties everything together and gives us a complete picture of the messiah who he would be how many there would be yeah isaiah didn't write one chapter to tell us that he would be a conquering king and a suffering servant and ride on the clouds of heaven, and ride on a donkey, and ride on a white horse. We don't have that anywhere. It doesn't exist. So it's a little more ambiguous than we take, than we really think about. It's just that we have the benefit of the New Testament to interpret all these things for us. Okay? All right, my last point. <laughs> that was a long point. My last point, and I'm going to ramble about this one for a little bit too, so hold on. I, I, again, wanted to find out, you know, how would the Old Testament writers look at the mess, these messianic prophecies and how would they interpret them? 
And what would they consider a messianic prophecy? So I couldn't figure out a good way to do that within the Christian tradition because we already have the New Testament and that already tells us which prophecies are messianic and which ones aren't. And so I went, I went outside the Christian tradition and I got a list of messianic prophecies done by Alfred Edersheim, who was a Jew in the 1800s. And he compiled this list of messianic prophecies that Middle Ages Jewish rabbis believed were messianic prophecies. So I figured, okay, they are still looking for the Messiah. These are the ones that they consider out of the Old Testament to be messianic prophecies. So his list, and it's out of the book, uh, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which, uh, I'm, man, I didn't mean to mention that book. Um, so side note about Alfred Edersheim. It's debatable how accurate this guy is about cultural context of Jesus' life. We use a lot of information from Alfred Edersheim's book uh, to inform us about cultural context for the New Testament, but it's actually debatable whether he's accurate or not because he was in the 1800s and he was using medieval, Middle Ages, rabbinic sources for his information. How much do we trust them? So he's got third-hand information, blah, blah, blah. So my husband is not at all a fan of Alfred Edersheim. Every time he hears his name mentioned, he kind of groans. But I wanted his list because I wanted an outside perspective, okay? So do what you want with Alfred Edersheim. In our house, we kind of uh, don't trust him, (laughs) except for this one purpose here, all right? I wanted his list of messianic prophecies, and I read through every every one of those six, 600 plus messianic prophecies. It took me like three days. And I, I was looking through it to see uh, what kind of prophecies were in there. And they were, you know, obviously a ton, 600 some. So a lot of them were referring to messianic times. So I took those out. I wanted to see what they would looking at for the Messiah, who he was and what he would do. I'm just going to give you a sample of some of the prophecies that were in there. And some of them I forgot about. And so it was good to read it. Genesis 49, we mentioned this in the last um, episode. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. So talking about a ruler through Judah. So that's referencing the kingship of a Messiah. Numbers 24, a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. So that one, and by the way, a star, it's, it's pretty, right? It's a pretty prophecy, but a star can actually also refer to divinity. So that might be a small clue that the Messiah would be uh, divine, that he would be God, the son of God. But a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, again, about kingship and about power. And about battering the brow of Moab, so about defeating Israel's enemies. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all those who see me ridicule me. So a a sufferer who gets ridiculed and God forsaking him. That's Jesus on the cross, by the way, saying that. That's how that's fulfilled. 
Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. So salvation could be seen as rescue, which wouldn't have to be spiritual. It could just be physical, but it also could definitely be spiritual. Lowly and riding on a donkey. This is another one, by the way, um, an idea about how rabbis and perhaps Old Testament Jews believed that the Messiah would come. Some believed that if Israel was in a state that they could receive the Messiah, meaning they were following the law, they were being obedient, that the Messiah could come gentle, riding on a donkey, humble, lowly, not a conquering king, not beating them into submission. Now, if Israel wasn't in obedience, wasn't following the law, wasn't keeping kosher, um, then the Messiah would come riding on a horse, coming with power, coming to conquer, coming to bring justice and bring righteousness in Israel as well as outside of Israel. So there were even ideas of a different state that Israel would need to be in for which version of the Messiah would come. That if Israel was worthy, they would get one version of the Messiah. And if Israel was not worthy, they would get a different version of the Messiah. We know that both are going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes in his second coming, because in his first, he rode on a donkey, and in his second, he's coming on a horse with great power. So we have the benefit of seeing it in two different times, whereas in the Old Testament, they didn't have any concept of there being a different time when these prophecies would be fulfilled. They saw it as all being fulfilled at one time. So how that would work, pretty confusing. It would be, it would still be very confusing to us if we thought all of those prophecies would have to be fulfilled at one time. So that's all, that's, a, that's what I have on the Messiah. It becomes a much more confusing picture one that you have to think a lot more about to try and, you know, see how, how on earth would this all come about if everything has to happen at one time? It does not make sense. So there would need to be different theories about two different messiahs, maybe four different messiahs coming in different states. They needed a way to explain this. And two different time periods was not a way that the Old Testament prophets and people came up with. So, yeah, I don't know what this does for you. I don't know if this helps you or not, but it's a, it's a way to understand better mm, the complexity of what the Messiah is and how beautifully Jesus fulfills it and how there's no reason to believe that the Old Testament prophets and Israelites were, you know, less intelligent or smart than we were or less insightful I think they actually were <laughs> really smart and really they they were working hard to try to understand this in the same way that Christians today work really hard to try to understand prophecy in Revelation which by the way reminds me can we take a chill pill with that because if Jews of the Old Testament and prophets who were giving that prophecy didn't understand that it would be Jesus in two different time periods, but all of it 
fulfilled by one person, I don't think we're going to figure out all of Revelation, right? You know, so that's just my two cents on it. Prophecy is for the edification of the church and to give them a heavenly perspective of our earthly home, not to fight over or to get really anxious about or to make it into a competitive game of who can figure it out and who can have a better idea about it. You know, that's, yeah, so I'll stop there. But basically, yeah, let's just all calm down and, you know, not consider the Old Testament people dummies or, you know, even people that are coming up with prophecy ideas now. So there's the Messiah. Uh, We're going to move on in the next episode, but we're still going to talk about the Messiah a little bit, and then we'll be done with it. It's such a fascinating topic and so multi-layered and deep and all over the place and, of course, incredibly important to everything. Jesus had to come as the Messiah to... I don't even know how to explain this. Basically, there was no good way for God to show how salvation would come so that we would identify him with that salvation, but also accept it from him. (laughs) It ties so many things together. You can think about it for about a year, four years, your life, and you'd still be pulling more stuff out of it. I've been doing that ever since I started studying this months ago. All right, so I'm going to stop there because I could probably ramble for another hour or so. I hope you guys learned something as usual. Hope you had a good time and hope you have a good day. I'll see you later. Bye.